Hey there, podcast listeners. This week, we're talking about body image. If you're not in a headspace for this topic right now, it is super okay to give this one a skip. It's cool. We 100% won't mind. The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. We all have bodies, and we all have feelings about our bodies. Sometimes some of us feel pretty good about the bodies we have and what we look like. And sometimes some of us feel pretty crappy about the way we look. But why does what we look like affect our headspace so much? And how do we even begin to research a topic as personal and as subjective as body image? This week, we're sitting down with some of the researchers from the Center for Appearance Research to try and wrap our heads around what we know about the role of appearance and body image in people's lives. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Philippa Diedrichs, a professor in psychology at the Center for Appearance Research at the University of the West of England in Bristol. She leads a team of researchers and students investigating psychological and social influences on body image and the development and evaluation of online and face-to-face body image interventions, advocacy efforts, and campaigns. Philippa, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. So before we talk a little bit about what we know about body image and how uh, how that exists in our society and how people deal with it or how it hits people, can we talk a little bit about how we actually do research in this area? Because this is one of these things that I think people have difficulty understanding. How do we conduct good uh, evidence-based research into the topic of body image? Sure thing. Uh, well, one of the most common ways in which body image is measured is through self-report questionnaires because body image is an internal state of how we think and feel about the way we look and what our bodies can do. So we work really closely with um, those types of measures, but what's really important is that they're validated measures so that we can be sure that they're reliable, um, that they can differentiate between people who have high body image concerns and low body image concerns. Um, and that people can actually understand them and answer the questions appropriately. So self-report is really common, um, often questionnaires on paper or online. Um, but increasingly, what we're also seeing is ecological momentary assessments. So essentially, those are little check-ins that come throughout the day, which might be on a mobile phone or an Apple Watch or something like that, um, which will prompt um, participants to answer those questions throughout the day rather than just doing a big questionnaire pack all at once in a study. So what's the benefit of asking someone periodically throughout the day rather than than having them sit down and do sort of half an hour of answering a questionnaire? Well, we know that body image fluctuates over time. So it's something that's not static. Um, And so there are trait and state-based measures where the trait ones are how we think people overall feel about their body image over time. And that's often what we use in those kind of questionnaire packs at one point in time. Um, But we also know that there's state body image. So how I might feel right in this moment, um, you know, if I'm getting ready to go out or I'm in the changing room at the gym um, or if I'm getting up and presenting in front of other people might be different to how I feel about my body image, say, later on tonight when I'm sitting in front of the television. So by having those um, momentary assessments throughout the day, we can kind of track those state fluctuations as well as getting more stable measures of body image. Does that allow us to track patterns and how uh, someone's or broad people, sort of in general, people's body image changes 
is based on where they are in their day, what kinds of visual stimulus they get. Is that also helpful for that kind of tracking? Yeah, exactly. So often in, in that type of tracking, there'll be questions about body image, but there'll also be questions about what's happening in that point at that point in time. So where is the person? Um, it might ask questions about some of the key factors that we know influence people's body image. For example, you know, have you recently compared yourself to someone on social media or someone in real life in terms of the way you look? So we get those additional contextual factors as well to try and get a sense of what's influencing that person's body image right then and there. So I know that there are often some problems with um, studies or reporting done on self-reports because obviously sometimes the things we self-report aren't entirely accurate. Quite often we, mm-hmm. uh, when we're doing self-report, um, we try and give the researcher the information we think they're looking for or that might put us in a better light. Is that something we see in these kinds of self-report assessments for body image as well? Yeah, certainly. I mean, all self-report measures are going to be um, subject to the same limitations. One of the tricky things with body image, though, is we know that it's made up of um, behavioral factors. So that sometimes we can have more objective measures of behavior. Um, but we also know that it's made up of people's cognitions and thoughts as well as their feelings. Um, and it's really hard to measure those without asking a person, um, you know, exactly how they're thinking and feeling. Um, There is some research which has looked at how those measures might correlate with physiological states like an increase in cortisol or stress hormones, um, as well as some behavioral measures as well. Um, And they do stack up fairly well, but certainly, you know, it is a difficulty with psychological research dealing with the issue of um, self-report. There are things, though, that you can put in place in your um, research to try and minimize any kind of self-report bias, for example, by doing anonymous questionnaires um, and as well by by counterbalancing the order in which um, you present different types of measures and things like that. So we do do those in our research to try and minimize those biases. But as with all research methods, unfortunately, there are some limitations. Any kind of research that sort of tries to contend and study what's going on in people's heads must be subjected to this this kind of complicated um, ability to build a study because it is so subjective and it's all about an individual person. And there's not really a good way to measure kind of externally those kinds of thoughts and feelings and how they affect us. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's really important that we use um, measures that have been psychometrically validated. And what that means is they've really been tested to see, say, if I administer those questionnaires, you know, um, at one point in time today, that in a week's time, we're going to get consistency with an individual's response when we are trying to tap into those broader trait-based measures, Um, as well as um, looking at does someone who responds on one questionnaire respond in a similar way on a measure that we think would be linked. So, for example, how does someone respond on a body image measure? Is that similar to how they respond on a mood measure? Because we'd expect there to be a correlation between those measures. So we do all of those checks as well to try and make sure um, that the measures are, are as robust as possible. Are there some standard assessments or standard metrics that are sort of the go-to ones in this uh, area of research? Yeah, it's actually, um, there are a lot of body image measures. Um, and in fact, um, some collaborators and I were recently doing a review of body image measures that had um, assessed basically the evaluative component of 
body image, which is how satisfied or dissatisfied someone feels with the way that they look. And we found that over a 100 measures had been used in the research in the past um, five years alone. So there are a lot of measures out there. Um, they do typically, um, you know, use the similar types of questionnaire items. And there are some key ones that have been used historically um, in recent decades. So one of the classic ones is a body dissatisfaction scale from a bigger battery of measures called the eating disorder inventory. Um, Thomas Cash is a prolific um, researcher and psychologist in this area who's developed a lot of measures of body image and his get used frequently as well. Is there a sense uh, when we're looking at body image of the scale of dissatisfaction or perhaps the the scale on how much people's perception of themselves might differ from reality? Um, I'm looking for sort of, I think probably there's a, a normalness, quote unquote, for how a lot of people tend to fluctuate uh, and how they feel about themselves. But I'm assuming there's also some extremes that we're looking for as well. Yeah, so what we see in the research, and there is a bias in the research in um, the sense that it's been largely conducted in North America, um, Australia, as well as Western Europe. Uh, but what we commonly see across all of the studies, and this has been, um, there's been body image research, concentrated body image research going on since the 80s. And what we typically see is that for girls and women, um, up to 80% of women and girls um, experience body image concerns. And for boys and men, it's typically between somewhere between 30 and 70%, depending on the age group. Um, and so, you know, to your point, Back in the 80s, actually, researchers um, coined this a normative discontent for women, where it's now considered more normative and normal for women and girls to be unhappy with the way that they look, as opposed to having positive body image. So certainly, we're seeing this high prevalence of body image concerns. And interestingly, often when people think about body image, they all, always think, oh, well, it's an issue that affects just children and young people. But what we see from the research is that we don't graduate from body image concerns. Um, those concerns um, are there throughout the lifespan, although the nature of them um, and what influences those concerns might vary depending on what life stage we're at. I'm curious, how much body image research is done globally, in particular outside of what we would consider sort of the Western world, obviously Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the US? Yeah, we're increasingly seeing pockets of research um, come out of Asia, as well as um, some out of the Middle East as well. The, the concentration of research is much smaller, but we're starting to see that. And certainly my team, um, we're starting to do research um, looking at body image in India with some collaborators there. Um, and our research centre um, also recently had a European network for the past four years um, that was funded by um, the EU funding framework for research. And we had over 36 countries involved in that network of people doing research in this area. So certainly it is growing. What's the scale from, I'm thinking, sort of body image and being dissatisfied with the way your body looks or the way you perceive your body to look with something more extreme like body dysmorphia? Is that kind of on the same spectrum or are they considered to be different things? They're considered to be different things. Um, body dysmorphia, eating disorders, um, and other kind of more psychiatric conditions might have body image concerns or body dissatisfaction as a component or a diagnostic criteria, but they're often accompanied by a range of other um, symptoms as well. And one of the important things when trying to distinguish between a diagnosable um, psychiatric or clinical disorder 
and um, dissatisfaction or subclinical levels is the extent to which it's impacting on a person's life. Um, that's not to say that the general body image concerns um, in the general population don't have a significant impact on people's lives. But when you're talking about body dysmorphia or eating disorders, it's at a much more significant level. So basically, body image and the way we perceive our bodies can feed into that. But those they tend to be more extreme than just sort of uh, what we think of as body image concerns. Yeah, exactly. And in the case of eating disorders, we know that eating disorders are very complex and it's a range of genetic, biological, psychological and social factors which contribute to the development of eating disorders. Um, body dissatisfaction is one of the most robust modifiable risk factors that we know of for eating disorders. So by that, I mean um, one of the factors that um, consistently predicts the development of eating disorders and is one that we can actually change. However, eating disorders are very complex um, and there's a range of other factors that are going on there. So just to give us a bit of a, a background or some understanding of where where to start with this, what do we know kind of broadly and um, what do we know more broadly about what influences body image today? Yeah, so one of the, the most kind of common um, theories in terms of what influences body image is associated so cultural theory. Um, and essentially, this theory, which has been um, supported by lots of um, empirical evidence now, is that there are three broad areas that influence our body image. So this can be um, exposure to cultural appearance ideals or pressures from um, media, as well as family, as well as peers and friends. And they can directly influence our body image. But we also know that there's some key psychological processes which um, mediate or help to explain how these um, broader cultural factors influence our body image. And so those two mechanisms, um, one is internalization um, of appearance ideals, which I'll explain briefly, as well as um, appearance social comparisons. So in terms of internalization of appearance ideals, um, we know that in society and in different cultures, we have standards of beauty or attractiveness or um, what is considered to be a good or attractive appearance. Um, and what we know is the the more that people internalize those appearance ideals, the greater their body dissatisfaction. So the more that they cognitively buy into these ideals and take them on board as their own personal standards of beauty to hold themselves and other people to, the more likely they are to experience body image concerns. The other psychological process, which is social comparisons, um, was actually born out of a theory um, from a social psychologist, Leo Festinger, back in the 1950s. And this applies, this theory applies beyond body image, but it's essentially about how as human beings, we like to judge where we stand in life and on certain factors by comparing ourselves to other people. Um, and when we make those comparisons, we have a tendency to compare ourselves to people who we think stand up um, as the gold standard for that criteria. So if I bring this back to appearance and body image, we might compare the way that we look to people in society who, you know, really embody, you know, the beauty ideal. So this might be celebrities, models, um, as an example. And what happens when we make those comparisons is we often fall short of them. Um, and this can result in body dissatisfaction. And that's particularly the case at the moment with appearance ideals because of things like um, retouching and the fact that most models and celebrities that are portrayed to reflect, um, you know, the ideal beauty are not generally representative of us in everyday life. What happens is we compare ourselves and we fall short, and this can also make us feel unhappy with the way that we look. So it's those broader cultural factors, social factors, these internal processes. And then um, much broader than all of that, of course, is a broader kind of social and political context um, and um, factors such as gender norms, um, as well as broader um, corporate 
corporate factors which um, and companies which kind of prey on these insecurities to sell products. So all of these factors are kind of operating in that broader ecosystem as well. I'm curious. Um, I, obviously, body image is a place where we're doing research in now. But how long have we been researching how uh, external factors impact body image from the standpoint of culture. I'm just wondering because obviously cultural ideals of beauty do change over time. I mean, even in the last hundred years, we've seen those ideals change quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. So how much history do we have in the research of body image or is it still sort of fairly new enough that we don't have um, as much data to look at kind of historically to see how changing cultural ideals have changed the way we think about ourselves? Yeah. So um, the, the kind of really concentrated empirical research started bubbling up in around the 60s. But I would say it's since the late 80s um, and the 90s that we've really had quite a substantial amount of research looking at body image in a really empirical um, and rigorous way. In terms of how changing um, beauty ideals might affect body image over time, that's a little bit hard to tell because there isn't a huge amount of longitudinal research that's being done to track people over really long periods of time, um, although we are starting to see some research projects that are starting to do that now. But certainly the idea of appearance ideals um, is not something that's new throughout history. Um, there have been countless examples of how certain appearances, um, certain beauty regimes and fashion have been um you know, have been prevalent and influenced people's desires and how they feel about themselves throughout history. I think one of the things, though, that is a little bit different now is the extent to which we are exposed to images um, that reflect these ideals, for example, through advertising, through mainstream media, as well as social media. So the opportunities to make those comparisons that I was talking about before um, are certainly a lot more abundant now than what they were a hundred years ago. And in particular, I guess, to be able to make those comparisons to images of people who aren't just the people we see every day on the street, but, uh, sort of surrounding us with images of those exceptional kind of representations of what we consider to be beautiful. Yeah, exactly. But the interesting thing is though, now we, you know, through social media and social networking sites, there are um, a lot of opportunities to make comparisons to our peers or in friends, but in a slightly different way. Because when we upload our images to social media, we can selectively choose which photograph we upload. So it might be one of 30 selfies that have been taken. But also um, individuals now have the capacity to um, quickly filter um, and digitally modify their images as well. So although, um, you know, you might think that comparisons to peers and friends might be more benign, actually they can be set set up for unrealistic comparisons as well. And it can be particularly potent because sometimes we might be able to discount those comparisons to celebrities or models because we might make those comparisons, but then we might say, well, um, you know, uh, models, you know, they don't reflect reality or that model has been retouched and things like that. Whereas sometimes it's harder to make those um, cognitive corrections when you're comparing yourself to friends um, and family that you might see online. Right. So I guess it would be easier for us to kind of discount the model we see on a big billboard as being an attainable thing that we should strive for. Whereas if we see a picture of our best friend looking pretty sweet on a night out, it's something that feels more attainable and more like a ready comparison. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, there's um, this is the, the research into social media and these types of comparisons is really in its infancy now. So that's what researchers are theorizing. Although there is some emerging evidence to suggest that um, comparisons on social media to peers and friends might be more potent than, say, to um, celebrities. 
This is interesting because I also assume that it kind of depends to some extent on who your friends are and who you follow on social media as to whether or not you'd be sort of opening yourself up to those kinds of comparisons. I'm just thinking of people that I know who follow a lot of people on social media who are kind of body positive and not necessarily representing society's ideal forms of beauty. Are those some, can those be somewhat insulating against negative body image? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think there's often a lot of hysteria and concern around social media, particularly when it comes to body image and it's seen as this big bad thing. And certainly when you look at kind of the cross-sectional research, um, you do tend to see this, this negative correlation consistently with, you know, the more that people consume social media, the worse their body image is. But the research is starting to get a little bit more nuanced than that. We know that certain types of activity on social media, like photo sharing, um, or using social media to seek out likes and validation is associated with negative body image. But the other flip side of social media, as you've alluded to, is that um, we can also curate our social media feeds and choose what we follow and don't follow. Um, and also there are um, now uh, lots of examples on social media through the body positive movement, for example, where social media can actually be used to show a diverse range of appearances and some more positive messages. Um, some colleagues and I did a study uh, that was published uh, late last year which looked at how um, – exposure on Instagram to uh, memes and quotes that have like kind of a more self-kindness and self-compassion approach, what impact they have on body image compared to say fitspiration um, images, which is images that reflect um, this, this new ideal to be fit, which is really about being thin and still very much focused on appearance, although it's couched in terms of health. And what we saw is that very brief exposure, so just five minutes exposure to Instagram images that featured these self-compassion messages actually had a positive impact for mood and for body image in the short term. So we're now doing more research to see if, um, uh, you know, posting body positive content through social media might be a really kind of low dose, low intensity and cost effective intervention to promote positive body image alongside some more intensive strategies that we do in schools and online, for example. I guess one of the questions for me would be, are the people who are just naturally more resilient seeking out some of those body positive messages and to fill their social feeds with a wider variety of um, images of, of beauty outside the ideal? Or is it that seeing those images more often makes them more resilient? I'm wondering if there's a chicken and egg question there. Yeah, certainly. I think it's probably a little bit of both. But in the research, if we just look at correlation and and kind of, as I said before, you know, measure how much people are exposed to social media and, and their body image, we find that negative correlation. But we um, can look at the kind of cause and effect relationship a lot more clearly, clearly in the experimental research, which is what we did with that Instagram study I just started talking about. So what we do in the experimental research is that we will systematically, we will randomly assign a group of um, participants in that study. It was um, young women aged between 80, 18 and 25. We'll randomly assign them to different social media accounts to view. So in one, they might view appearance neutral content, which might be um, images of like interior design or travel images that don't feature any human bodies. Then um, we will also have a group that's randomly assigned to look at the um, positive posts and then a group that's randomly assigned to look at images that reflect the appearance ideal. And we measure their body image before, uh, immediately before and immediately after they look at these images. 
We do try to have cover stories to reduce that self-report bias that we were talking about before um, by doing memory tests and framing it as being about how um, personality characteristics might influence the way in which people engage with social media. So not kind of bringing body image um, to the forefront. And that's how we start to tease apart the cause and effect relationship as well. Are we looking at how long those potentially positive or negative effects might last as well? Is it sort of like a quick hit and then it sort of dissipates? Or is it something that can help us throughout the day, throughout subsequent days? That's a really good question. So far, the research has really looked at that, you know, that quick hit. So immediately after and the short term effects, um, to, to assess those longer term effects, that's when we're looking at kind of longitudinal and perspective research where we follow people over a long period of time, um, which is how we can look at longer term effects. The problem with that is it gets a little bit murky because everybody is exposed to so much social media and imagery in their everyday lives that it then becomes very difficult to control for that. Um, but we are um, actively doing a study right now, actually, where we've recruited participants um, and what we're doing is they're randomly assigned to these different conditions and what we're doing is posting. They like a certain page on Facebook that we've created and we'll be posting um, body positive content three times a day through that so that it hopefully will come up in their feed compared to um, content that's focusing on, for example, science articles or appearance neutral articles with the idea to have a kind of more naturalistic observation of the impact of um, potentially seeing these images and messages in your Facebook feed over a period of two weeks. And then we're going to measure their body image before, after that two weeks, and then we're going to follow them up three months later. I imagine that trying to do research into ways to create positive change in this area must be so difficult because tracking what's been effective in particular, given the larger context of society that we can't just pull people out of for something like a double blind controlled experiment, that must be really difficult. Yeah, it is. But I think, you know, you can use research evidence in all different ways. We can use um, studies to really pinpoint mechanisms, which is what we've been talking about. But you can use a broader evidence base looking across studies um, as a way to advocate for changes at a broader level, which might help to create environments that foster positive body image. So, for example, if you look at the breadth of evidence, which has looked at the impact of exposure to media on body image, you know, there are now meta-analyses that have summarized dozens of studies looking at this that find a consistent effect of, you know, a, a detrimental impact to body image of exposure to appearance ideals in media. And when you use that body of evidence, that's when you can go to policymakers or, for example, here in the UK, we have the Advertising Standards Authority where researchers are trying to engage with those governing bodies to say, look, we're, we're seeing this pattern of results to suggest that this isn't benign um, and this is important, particularly when we consider the other body of research, which has looked at the impact of body image on people's lives, including their psychological and physical health and their education and workplace aspirations. So what can we do about this? Um, and I think the other thing is to start engaging with businesses um, to try and encourage them and to see the benefits of promoting positive body image. And we are starting to see that. And there is a consumer demand increasingly, as we can see through campaigns on social media, for there to be more diversity in advertising in terms of appearance. I'm assuming some of the pushback that corporations will say is that these images sell their product better. Um, mm -hmm. But I wonder as to whether or not they've done any actual testing on that. Yeah, I mean, my PhD um, actually tried to address that very um, issue by not only measuring the impact of exposure to different types of 
um, bodies and appearances in the media on body image, but also consumers' reactions to that. Because as you say, often the common argument is, well, for women, we need to have thin models because that's what sells products. For men, we need really muscular and lean models. So in my research, we experimentally tested that. And what we found was that um, more average-sized models um, either had no impact on body image or a positive impact on body image compared to not viewing models or compared to the traditional thin and muscular models. But interestingly, there was no difference in how consumers responded to the brand. So they responded just as positively to the ones that showed diverse images. Uh, and I've had lots of discussions with advertisers and creative agencies and brands about these findings. Um, and of the brands that have actually started doing um, more body positive campaigns or showcased greater diversity, um, for the most part, they've seen very positive um, trends in their sales as well as consumer feedback. To the brands and people that say, well, we need to do this to sell products, well, I would um, question then, well, how do you know that if you don't offer people an alternative? Um, and so, and it's, they will often say, well, that's, you know, that's what's aspirational. And my argument to that is, you know, creative agencies and advertisers, they're some of the most creative people out there. And if they've just got to rely on dissatisfaction or people's insecurities to sell products, well, then that's not very creative. And I would encourage them and ask them to do better than that. And I would say probably as well, it discounts a whole group of people who maybe don't don't have those kinds of aspirations or who just don't visually fit the norm. Exactly. And I think it, it, it really stereotypes and dumbs down the message to consumers assuming that that's the only way to sell products. Um, and I think, you know, there are, there are myriad ways that you can engage with consumers and that requires a level of creativity. And certainly, um, you know, they talk about then one of the, one of the comebacks is, well, you know, X brand has done that and made a big deal about it. So we're not going to do that because it's not going to be a unique selling point or a point of difference. And my response to that, well, staying with the norm and just showcasing a very narrow appearance ideal is not making you stand out or any different. Almost everybody is doing that. Um, so that's not a very valid argument either. So after having talked a little bit about where some of this is coming from, from a cultural level, I want to talk a little bit about what the actual impacts are of negative body image or dissatisfaction in what we look like. So can we maybe shift over to talk about kind of one of the main things we think about when we think about body image, which is girls and teenage girls, because I think that tends mm -hmm. to be the first thing we think about when someone brings up the topic of body image. Sure. So, well, that is the group that we know the most about, adolescent girls, um, as well as young adult women. And uh, it's probably not surprising to most people that body image concerns can affect a person's psychological health. So, um, we know from prospective and longitudinal research, which means that this is not just a correlation, but that having body image concerns has actually been shown to predict these outcomes in future. We know that having body image concerns for adolescent girls is associated with um, greater stress, anxiety, low mood, and depression in some cases. As I alluded to before, it can predict the onset of eating disorders, although it's not sufficient alone to do that. Um, but we also know that it impacts on physical health. So we know that people who have positive body image um, are much more likely to eat um, fruits and vegetables, have a healthy relationship with exercise and moving their bodies, um, are less likely to engage in substance misuse and are more likely to engage in safe sex behaviors. So there's 
lots of evidence around the psychological and health outcomes that are associated with body image. But we also know that um, body image concerns can affect um, adolescent girls' performance in the classroom um, and their and their educational aspirations. So there's research um, that shows that girls who have body image concerns are less likely to put their hand up in the classroom or to engage in classroom debate. And we also know that um, if, um, and this, this is through research that's been done in the US, China, and Finland in some large scale studies, that adolescent girls who think that they're overweight, irrespective of what their actual body weight is, are much more likely to achieve poorer grades. And this tends to be around the ages of 14 to 16. And this can be a key age in which young girls are starting to, you know, that, that their grades are starting to affect their chances of getting into university in the future or where they're making decisions about, um, you know, what they might like to do after school. So it's a critical time there that, that body image concerns be, can be affecting their academic and uh, performance and aspirations. And then importantly, what we're um, now seeing is that body image concerns can also affect how girls stand up for themselves and engage in their society. So body image is also closely related to self-objectification, which is this idea that a person um, or a girl internalizes the view that they um, their body is an object to be looked at rather than seeing themselves as this dynamic, multifaceted person that has all sorts of characteristics that are valued, um, not just their appearance, but their internal qualities and abilities. And we know that when girls experience body image concerns, they're less likely to speak up and give an opinion. They're also more likely to self-objectify. And when girls and young women self-objectify, they're less likely to stand up and challenge gender inequality in society and take part in social activism. So that's when you start to see how body image is really affecting all key areas of adolescent girls' lives, but also their kind of civic engagement as well. Has there been any research done on the specific body concerns of uh, some of the at-risk communities? I'm thinking in particular trans communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's emerging research now, which is um, looking at individuals who expe- um, experience gender dysphoria. And what the research tends to suggest, perhaps unsurprisingly, is that they may have higher rates of body image concerns um, co- compared to cisgendered people. However, I think the picture might be a little bit more complex than just that kind of broad sweeping statement, because it might depend on um, the, the kind of broader context in which that person feels like they're being accepted um, in, in their bodies. So overall, the research tends to suggest that they might be more vulnerable to body image concerns, but we certainly need a lot more to kind of unravel what the causes of that are. So I do want to talk a little bit about weight and eating disorders. I think it's important to do in part because when we think about body image, we tend to also uh, think about and talk about the associated eating disorders um, that mm-hmm. we've kind of connected to those more broadly. So you did mention earlier that while uh, a negative body image or body dissatisfaction was one of the factors that can impact uh, the creation or the starting of something like an eating disorder, it isn't the only thing. So can you talk a little bit about what we know about the causes of eating disorders? Yeah, certainly. So what we know about the core, one of the kind of mo- most robust predictors of having an eating disorder is being female um, and, and and also the body dissatisfaction. But we know that there are biological factors and increasingly there's research which is um, trying to identify genetic factors which might predict the onset of anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. Um, and there's some really large-scale studies um, that are being led by um, a really prolific researcher, Cynthia Bulick, to look at that. Um, and what we are also seeing in terms of epigenetics, that there seems to be an interaction between 
between these environmental factors, which we've talked a lot about, and some of these genetic factors as well, um, which might put people at a greater risk for developing an eating disorder. So it's not just sort of the societal norms, but also potentially actual genetic factors that impact your risk potential for developing an eating disorder. Yes. Do they tend to run in families? Um, the they there is some evidence to suggest that 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 there might be this genetic ten- tendency which is passed through a familial history however it's not really as clear cut as that the mm. the research into genetics of eating disorders is is you know really just starting to build now but i think the key take home message here is that um, you know, eating disorders are not just trivial issues that um, are a result of people being really vain or obsessed with media and appearance ideals. Um, that's not the case at all. Um, and not everybody who experiences body image concerns is going to go on to develop an eating disorder. And that's really clear if you just look at the prevalence rates of body dissatisfaction, as I said before, are up to 80% of women and girls, whereas only a very small proportion, um, you know, upwards of the, the prevalence rates for eating disorders are anyway from um, 1% to 10% of the population. So um, not everyone who experiences body image concerns is going to develop an eating disorder. And that's a really important point because that idea can help to reinforce the stigma that's often associated with eating disorders, that people somehow choose to have eating disorders and if they were just not silly little girls, um, they wouldn't have eating disorders when the evidence is very clear that eating disorders are complex psychiatric illnesses that are influenced by a range of factors, not just social and cultural factors. I think it's definitely an important thing to note that the idea of uh, the sort of things we say without thinking, the internalized messages we have that we then verbalize in things like fat talk can be re- – people pick up on that. Those things have a wider consequence in kind of reinforcing some of those negative messages. And they're really hard to stop. Even if you're trying not to engage in them, it is so hard not to sometimes because it is culturally normative to engage mm. in that kind of talk. Yeah, there's um, some experimental research that shows that young women only need to listen to fat talk and body talk for two to three minutes before their body image worsens. So it's something that's very potent and it's also highly prevalent um, in a lot of cultures and societies to have these conversations about appearance, um, particularly for girls and women. And we can also see that transmitted to younger girls, for example, you know, when a little girl is told, oh, wow, you look so cute or you look so beautiful. Um, a lot more frequently than commenting on her personal attributes or what she's actually doing. And it can be something that's really difficult to change in the sense that it is very entrenched, but sometimes just becoming aware of what that is and being able to name it um, means that you can see it happening in everyday life and then you can build up strategies to address it. So the first is just to not participate in it, so to not respond with fat talk or body talk through to some people, um, friends or family, you might feel comfortable challenging it and exploring, you know, why are we talking about our bodies like this? Or, you know, what is it that's really upsetting us or making us feel um, sad at that moment? So instead of saying, oh, I feel so fat today, really trying, you know, fat is not a feeling. It's really trying to understand, well, what's going on in that person's life that's actually making them feel bad that may or may not have anything to do with the way that they look. And, you know, although that can be individually challenging, it is a strategy that we can all do that doesn't really rely on it. It doesn't cost us anything and it doesn't take a lot of um, resource or capacity to do that. Philippa, thank you so much for your time today. It's a really important topic and I'm glad that there is more research being done in this area. 
great. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Philippa's research or the Center for Appearance Research at the University of the West of England in Bristol, we have links to get you started on the in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. We'll continue with an interview with Diana Harcourt, also from the Center for Appearance Research in a minute. But first, I wanted to do a shout out to another science podcast we love, because you'll probably love it too. People Behind the Science. Hosted by Dr. Marie McNeely, each episode is a one-on-one with a different scientist, guiding us through their journey by sharing their successes, failures, and passions. It's really cool to hear all the different paths people have taken, and Dr. McNeely brings in scientists and researchers from all kinds of disciplines. I mean, just look at the last few weeks as an example. Biochemistry, computer science, molecular genetics, physics, ecology, anthropology, psychology, medicine, the list goes on and on. This podcast is about science, but also about people. If you're an aspiring scientist or no one, this podcast is especially made for them. This is real scientists talking about how real science is done, including all the rough and bumpy roads along the way. You should definitely check out People Behind the Science. Find them on your podcast subscription service of choice or via their website at peoplebehindthescience.com. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Professor Diana Harcourt, Director of the Center for Appearance Research at the University of the West of England in Bristol. Her own research interests focus on people's experiences of altered appearance, particularly those associated with cancer or burns. She's a chartered health psychologist and sits on the Scar Free Foundation Research Council, the British Psychological Society Research Board, and the editorial boards of the journals Scars, Burns, and Healing and Body Image. Diana, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So you spend a lot of time thinking about the psychosocial impacts that someone having a visible, a visibly different appearance experiences. So first, in the context of your research, what do we mean by visible difference? Uh, we re- It's a complex issue, but we refer to it to mean the cha- when somebody's appearance is different in some way to what we might consider to be the norm. So we're talking about things like scarring or burn injuries, um, congenital differences, so things that people are born with, such as cleft lip and palate. Obviously, burns would be something that happened after an accident. Or sometimes it might be a disease or it's treatment that can alter somebody's appearance. So in the context of cancer treatment, for example, somebody may have scarring from surgery or hair loss due to chemotherapy. Um, There could be skin conditions. There's a whole manner of things that may affect the way that somebody looks. And when we say visibly different, it doesn't have to be that it's always on show to everybody else. Obviously, if it's a hands or face, some aspects are more visible than others. But it could be any part of the body that is affected that um, that, that person is conscious that their, their, their appearance is different in some way. So it sounds like the research is quite heavily concerned with both the short-term effects um, and also the long-term effects of often sudden changes in appearance. Um, would that be generally true? Um, the research in area in general is concerned with any change with any aspect of appearance that is in some way different. So whether that is a congenital condition, so something that somebody's been born with or a condition they've had their whole lives, 
um, or the aspects of the times when appearance a change has, has um, a change in appearance has happened quite quickly. So, for example, in my areas of research, a burn injury or going through cancer treatment, those situations that nobody wants to be in that situation, and one of the consequences are changes to appearance that somebody obviously didn't want those changes to happen, and somebody is confronted with as well with the change to their appearance in addition to the potential shock and stress of a, a, di- a diagnosis, other treatments, or the potential stress around something like like a, like a burn injury. So for some people, there are issues such as um, post, uh, traumatic injuries and post-traumatic stress alongside the changes to appearance. So they could be dealing with a lot of things at one time. So it sounds like most of the visible differences we're talking about are generally perceived to be uh, inherently kind of negative. I mean, many of them come about from something like a disease uh, diagnosis or from an accident or injury. Um, I'm just trying to pick my brain and see if I can come up with one that we might perceive as a more positive change. But I guess something like cosmetic surgery, since it's sort of an opt-in, uh, and you get to pick when it happens to you or like extreme body modification, which is sort of the only other one I can think of. Those are sort of self-selected things. So I guess that probably doesn't quite hit people in the same way. Oh, well, lots of interesting things in there. Um, the body modification and cosmetic surgeries is a separate area of research from the visible difference research. But within that, it's often assumed that visible difference is a negative experience. Um However, we do know that, yes, for some people, it is a very difficult adjustment to make and there are a lot of difficult um, challenges that people face when their appearance changes and when they, they look different to the people around them. But one of the things we try to encourage people to do is to avoid the assumption that looking different or having an altered appearance is always going to be a negative experience and a negative thing. And there's a growing interest in what are the the, the positive issues, the positive outcomes that people find from that. And really interestingly, the whole issue of resilience and adjustment and why is it that some people can go through an experience like this and really struggle and have a really difficult time Whereas other people seem to manage those, the challenge of an altered appearance very well and can even seem to be sort of thrive as a result of it. And looking at the psychological differences, why that might be, it's been an area of research that we've been interested in quite a while so that we can develop interventions and forms of support for the people who do have problems. That's really interesting. Has, has there been, are there any theories about what types of people tend to be more resilient for this, uh, for this, these types of injuries or these types of, of great changes to their appearances mm-hmm. while other people might be less resilient or be more inclined to, um, anxiety or depression or problems, uh, sort of mental health problems associated yeah. with these kinds of changes? Yeah. So the, the kind of outcomes or the, the potential problems are, as you say, could be anxiety, depression. Often it's, we, we consider it in terms of things like social anxiety and potentially avoidance, wanting to avoid situations where you may feel you're going to be the centre of attention or draw, draw attention to yourself or um, concerns around maintaining, establishing relationships, particularly intimate relationships. And that whole focus of why some people can manage those issues well and others have these negative outcomes, as you say, is really interesting. Um, We've conducted the biggest study in the area to date. We had over 1,200 adults with a range of visual differences. And we asked them to fill out quite a um, substantial pack of measures. 
And we used the analysis there. We looked at what are the factors that seem to be influencing this, uh, the outcome and the adjustment. And amongst the, the factors that came up were the psychological factors. So these particularly, um, some people's um, outlook on life. So those who had a more optimistic outlook, they fared much better than those who were more um, pessimistic. We also um, um, were interested in the importance that people place on appearance. So for those who thought those who thought that appearance was a fundamental part of who they were and it was very important to them, they struggled more. Whereas those who had a broader sense of self, if you like, so they would think about themselves in terms of partly their appearance, but also who they were, what their strengths are, what they were, what they were interested in, the other skills, not just thinking about themselves in terms of appearance. That was a benefit. Those who were less concerned that others were going to judge them negatively on the basis of their appearance, that was a kind of a protective factor. So being able, not being so worried about negative adjustment, not sorry, negative evaluation. And also really importantly was social support. So those who felt that they had the support they needed um, and that others didn't just, that they felt accepted by others, irrespective of how they looked, that was another very um, protective factor. And those are the kind of things that we are interested in because we think psychologists can support people to develop those skills or change their thoughts and behaviours in that area. So we're using that information to develop interventions to support the people who may be less able to manage the challenges that they face. When you talk about social support, are we talking specifically about like clinical social support or are we also looking at the kind of family and friends and kind of personal yeah. social structures around that person as well? Yeah, the structures around the person are so important. So the family and friend support that people have around them is really, really key. So we know that some families place more appear importance on appearance than others. So if you think about it, if the child was had a visible difference and they were the messages they got from their family repeatedly were a looking good was important and then if something happened to that young person's appearance, that would make that quite problematic. Whereas if they were if their family put less importance on appearance so the child was encouraged to be thinking about their interests, what they were like as a friend. You know, were they were they entertaining? Did they have a good sense of humour? Did were they smart, intellectually smart? Um, what were their personality? What were their interests in life? Then it's less focused on appearance, and that's really encouraging and that's really supportive. So this is the immediate support available to an individual. Not not just in terms of sort of clinical support or more structured peer support from other people who've been in a similar situation. Talking about um, focus and pressure on particular people based on their appearance, mm. I'm wondering if in the research we see a big gender discrepancy on how women versus men um, deal with uh, complications of visible differences and these kinds of feelings. Just knowing that society in general tends to put a lot of pressure on women to look a certain way in ways that we don't tend to put as much on men. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There, um, there is often um, it's easily to think that having a visible difference would be harder for women than for men because of the factors that that you've just mentioned. But what research is showing that is that it, it can be just as problematic for men as it is for women. And I think that's because the changes that we're talking about are changes that people haven't wanted to happen. Um, 
So, and that could be irrespective of men or women. You're right. It's often assumed that having a visible difference would be harder for women than for men. However, the research evidence doesn't necessarily support that. And I think that's because the changes we're talking about are changes that nobody has chosen to happen to them. And because appearance is fundamental to who we are, it's a key part of our identity. And for it to change suddenly can be just as difficult for men and for women. Sometimes people think, for example, that if a man was to lose his hair due to chemotherapy, it wouldn't be so problematic because it's more usual for men to lose hair naturally. But that doesn't mean that the men that are losing their hair through chemotherapy have wanted that to happen. So it can still be just as problematic for men as it is as it is for women. So I don't think it's surprising to anyone to hear that people with visible scars or noticeable differences may struggle with mental health. But as much as we all want to rally around the idea of sort of don't judge a book by its cover, I mean, society at large mm. doesn't make it easy for people with certain types no. of visible differences. I mean, there are real ways in which many people are treated differently because of the way they look. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're quite right. And unfortunately, there are still accounts of people being um, discriminated against because of their appearance in all manner of ways. Um, the charity Changing Faces in the UK put out a report um, in 2017 that was a survey of adults who had self-identified as having a visible difference. And the accounts there of how um, how they were they were treated in certain situations, in whether that's a work setting or public setting, such as in shops, in restaurants, in medical situations, health encounters. There are some disturbing accounts of how people are, um, how pe the general public and certain professions and people respond to people who look different. And just before we end, do you have any advice to give parents who have small children, uh, in particular young children who are without their own filters and who may not necessarily understand that the person that they're seeing might have, um, might be stressed out or might be anxious about their appearance mm -hmm. and are just curious because they're seeing someone that looks different than other people they've seen before and are doing yeah. what kids do, which mm -hmm. is marking, you know, pointing things out yeah. and exclaiming about things and kind of getting excited about yeah. the new things they see in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. People are curious and we are inquisitive. And if we see something that's different, we do want, we are interested in why that is the case. What I think parents can do is encourage their children to recognize and accept that everybody's different in some way or another. And whether that is because of a scar on their face or because they have different size or shape or hair color or a height or whatever it may be. To, so young people appreciate that we come in all shapes and sizes. We all look different and that no particular appearance is more um, valued than others. Um, I think parents also have a role to play in kind of modeling their reaction to other people as well. So if parents themselves be careful, cautious not to stare, not to ask inquisitive questions, intrusive questions, sorry, um, and their child will take the lead from that. Um, but it, I think appreciating diversity of appearance is something that everybody, we should all be trying to do. And that could have benefits from that for people with and without visible differences if society in general, young people and adults were more accepting of uh, and celebrating appearance in however it may come. Diana, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. And if you want to learn more about Diana Harcourt, we have links available for clicking in the show notes for this episode, which, as always, you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. With me are Nadia Craddock and Jade Parnell. 
They are both PhD candidates at the Centre for Appearance Research at the University of the West of England in Bristol. Together, they co-host the Centre's official monthly podcast, Appearance Matters the Podcast, where they discuss everything related to the psychology of how we look. Nadia and Jade, welcome to Science for the People. Hi! Thanks for having us. Because it was your podcast that led me to interviewing both Philippa and Diana about their research in body image science, I wanted to have you both on to talk a little bit more about the podcast as well. One of the things I like about um, the podcast as I started to listen to more of the episodes is it's one of these topics where it, from an academic perspective, it's still quite accessible. There's not so much jargon that you can't approach it as a layperson, especially if you've got some familiarity with body image issues, which I think a lot of people, a lot of lay people for sure, just have some experience with that topic. Topic. Yeah, we we agree. We want to make it, and one of the highlights on the podcast is we really like to bring in evidence and the most recent current evidence that we have available from kind of not only our research centre but also broader. Um, and we we kind of want the lay audience to understand that as well. So being able to translate it in a way that's available for them, but also kind of going into enough detail about the methodology and the research itself, so that you know, a lay audience can understand it enough, but equally be able to, you know, get details about the research specifically. So what are your goals for the podcast going forward? Where would you like to see it go and grow to? Well, I think because the the, the kind of purpose of the podcast has changed over time, it, it continues to evolve. Where we want it to go does evolve um, more and more. So it started obviously to promote this conference and then it became about promoting the centre um, and the research going on in the centre. And then it it's now becoming bigger. So it, we're trying to talk about all of these different topics related to appearance, psychology research and body image research. Because as you said, I think a lot of people have a connection to, to what it is, but then to bring in the most current evidence. So we know where we are, because I think sometimes you can have an idea of something. So, for example, social media, you think or we, automatically we might think social media is automatically bad for everyone's body image. But then there is research to kind of show some some counter evidence to that and how and what that can look like. So I think it kind of brings the bigger picture. So in terms of where it's going, I just think we want to get some of the because lots of people are talking about body image, to get more of the evidence out to people who are talking about it. So um Yeah. And it's great that we've got, you know, people like you, Rochelle, looking and finding our podcast. And the more listenership is growing, um, the more that we're taking on board what our listeners would like to hear and thinking about what sort of topics are relevant, um, timely. What for so the social media one, for example, was great. People really found that interesting, engaging, because it's something that was quite relevant for them. Lots of people use social media, but putting a different spin on it, thinking about how we can use it in positive ways for people's body image was quite a useful tool. And I, I think going forward, we're going to be really trying to to listen more to what it is people want to hear in terms of body image and appearance related topics and really tailoring that so that we can bring the best kind of research in that area. So tell us a little bit maybe about some of the topics you have coming up. So we have just released an episode on acne and body image, so how acne can uh, influence someone, how someone feels about how they look. And our next episode um so interesting one, we're talking about male body image. So I think sometimes when we talk about the, the idea of body image, people kind of go automatically to thinking about women and, and particularly teenage girls. 
Um, and sometimes uh, men and boys get overlooked. Yeah. But we're seeing increasingly that men and boys are, are really experiencing real concerns and anxiety with their body, with their bodies. But that can be manifested in different ways. So we've got on that episode, we've got a a real expert in that area, um, Dr. Scott Griffiths from Australia. And then we've got a influencer. Yeah, um, Calvin Davies. He is a blogger and a media influencer. And I've interviewed him, which was great. And it's really nice to get different stances from the research side as well as from someone who's quite an activist in the area Um, and that's been in the pipeline for quite a while because like Nadia said male body image as much as it takes a bit more of a shadow in comparison to body image with women um, it's it's something that's quite an important topic too and we feel that. That sounds great. I'm definitely looking forward to both of those episodes. And uh, as I speak, the episode on acne, as you mentioned, has just aired. I have listened to that and it was uh, really, really good as someone who has definitely had some great experiences with acne in her life. Uh uh, I give that episode two thumbs up. Oh, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. If you want to check out the Appearance Matters podcast, and you totally should, we have a link for you to click in the show notes for this episode, along with more links to where you can learn more about Nadia and Jade's research as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thanks for having us, Thank you. Cheers. And if you've got a phone in your hand with a podcast app already fired up, likely since you're hearing my voice, you can also search for the Appearance Matters podcast in that app. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 